0: Welcome, everyone, to Investing for Generational Wealth. Let us dive into the world of expert financial insights and strategies. This is your host, Keisha Kolor, and welcome to today's webinar, Landlording on Autopilot with Mike Butler. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer, we are not financial advisors. All investments are subject to risks, including the possible loss of the money you invest. Therefore, please perform your due diligence before making any financial decisions. And of course, consult your CPA and your attorney before embarking on any investments. Today's guest is Mike Butler. Mike enjoys creating millionaires by helping them automate much of their landlording. His proven system works. You'll get a lot more than just your application fees and late charges. Get your tenants to gladly pay you with interest for tenant caused damages and repairs, slash your turnover costs by 50% and more. Imagine no more phone calls and see how you can run your rental business from anywhere using just your smartphone. Mike Butler authored two number one bestseller, business books, on, including Landlording on Pilot. Brandon Turner of biggerpockets.com says, without Landlording on Autopilot, I doubt I would have ever succeeded with rental properties. Mike's book guided my business every step of the way and I owe a huge debt to his insights. This book is a must read for any current or future landlord. And with that, let's get into it. Happy Friday. So today here with me, I have Mike Butler, uh, my friend who I met through Daniel Homeland, who hosts uh, real estate investing club at Intel. And so today Mike's going to be talking to us about landlording on autopilot, I believe. And, uh, He has some questions that he's prepared ahead of time. If you have questions, just uh, throw them in the chat or, you know, raise your hand and we can just address them as we go.
1: Uh, And a standard disclaimer for uh, Acres, you know, we are not lawyers, we're not CPAs. Invest your own risk uh, and use this information at your own risk.
0: It's all educational and maybe entertainment. That's
1: right.
2: Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, oldest of seven kids, I grew up in a low income neighborhood, not knowing that I grew up in a uh, low income neighborhood. If you've heard of the Kentucky Derby, um, that, that's, that race is run every year at Churchill Downs. I grew up just a few blocks from there and being the oldest of seven, never had, uh, any superstar mentors, coaches, folks in a neighborhood I could look up to. So the kids I went to school with, their parents worked in factories or had, you know, manual labor jobs. Nobody was. No parents were attorneys, CPAs, doctors, things like that. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with that, and I think that's what uh, allowed me to end up where I'm at today. What's interesting, though, is being the oldest of seven kids. Guess how many of my brothers and sisters are involved in real estate? Key shop. Zero. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Okay, yeah. so um, I uh, I had a job. My job. At the time, I was uh, I got hired full-time as a police officer in Louisville, Kentucky, in my hometown. And I was doing long-term undercover investigations, contract for hire, murder for hire, organized crime on federal task force and a bunch more. And it was fun, exciting, best job on the planet. At the time, I'm not sure I'd want to do that in today's world. But uh, anyway, when I came out of the rec- recruit school, I was in uniform. And there was a fellow who was eligible to retire and he got ticked off at some young whippersnapper that got promoted to sergeant or a boss. And he threw up that favorite middle finger and he says, I'm out of here, I'm retiring. And so a couple of months later I get transferred to a district in the neighborhood I grew up in where Churchill downs is and I pull up there working the graveyard shift, late watch shift. And I see Al riding around in a golf cart back there where all the barns are and the horses. And I said, Al, what are you doing back here? And he says, well, I can't live on my police pension. And I'm like, Whoa, that was an eye opener for me married and two kids. And I said, wow. So a lot of my fellow officers would work what we call off duty jobs where they go guard a construction site or sit in a bank or something like that to make extra money. And, uh, what they didn't realize. Now I got two younger brothers as policemen too. What they did not realize, and you guys are sharp enough to know this: if if somebody sends you a ten ninety nine for the money they paid you over six hundred dollars for the year, guess what? You got to report that as earned income, and then in my state anyway, you're looking at paying probably close to fifty percent of that in income tax. And I'm like, holy cow, I don't want that. So anyway, so uh, I had a paper route. I got a paper route in the seventh grade uh so that i could pay for my phd and my phd was my private high school diploma and so i got a paper route delivering papers that paid for my tuition and then it was handed down to all of my brothers and sisters so they could do the same thing and uh and so i wanted that old paper route okay we're all scared if you can for those of you who've been in the business for a while you can remember doing your first deal. it's A little bit scary. You know, uh, it's not like buying a home, you're buying an investment property. So what did I do? I limited myself. I said, well, I'm going to buy these little two bedroom houses on my old paper route. And I was comfortable with that. So I bought one, fixed it up 13 days using my hands and uh, I still have it today. And, um, that's where I got started. I didn't have any money. What's unique about how I got started. I had less than a thousand dollars. In the police officers credit union. Well, I'm going more than 60 seconds, ain't I? But anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and um my wife's getting my bride's getting me a cup of coffee here. So um oh, so I, I bought these little two-bedroom houses. I thought, well, if I could buy three of these, get them paid for by the time I've retired, that would double my police pension. I didn't know squat about real estate, had no mentors, no, no experts to go ask questions about and stuff. And so I had less than a thousand bucks in the police officers credit union and I hocked everything I had mold, uh, Ford Ranger pickup truck, my 77 Monte Carlo at the police officers credit union. And, uh, I'd that money to buy my first house from HUD for $17,000. Yeah. That's chumps change in today's world. Okay. And that house today is probably worth about 85,000. Okay. Great solid little two bedroom rental. And uh, so I bought it for 17 fixed it up using my own hands. I uh, did it in 13 days for about $2,000. And uh, then I called all the banks back then. We had Yellow Pages. You guys, you knew guys might not know what that is. So I called all the banks trying to get a bank loan. Nobody would give me a loan. The last one, they were anti-investor and I didn't realize there was a difference. And so the last bank that I called was called Cumberland. And today that bank is known as Fifth Third Bank if you live over here in the Southeast, you might know about them. And Charlie Ackerman was a loan officer and he said, I'll give you 80% of what it appraises for. Not what I purchased it for, what it appraises oh. for. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm sorry. And, uh, I was like, well, wow, I thought it was illegal. And so I did that, that house appraised, I bought it for 17. It appraised for 30. Okay. And I was able to get a loan for 24,000. Well, the house across the street, people move out. Somebody goes in there and fixes it all up. It's pretty. It goes up for sale. I do the same thing there, except all I had to do was change the locks. Well, my wife, I said, man, this is awesome. And I was making like $150 a month over and above all my expenses. And back then that was awesome. And somebody, what else can you buy? It doesn't cost you anything. Somebody else is going to pay for it. I was clueless on any kind of tax benefits. But somebody else pays for it, puts money in my pocket, goes up in value, sign me up, okay? And uh, so I like that. And so my goal was to get three. My wife put the invisible fence or shock collar on me after that second house and said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, big boy!" Said uh, it's probably too good to be true. So let let it sit for a year and see what happens. So we had a dedicated real estate savings account. I put the money in there. Paid if there was any repairs or anything like that. Took it out of there. Well at the end of one year we had 8,000 bucks in it. And she says, okay, you can buy another one. So, uh, I bought, I think it was two more that month and that year I set a goal to buy one house a month and I bought 18, never having gone to a bank to buy any of them and had real true blue closings at, at an attorney's uh, office or title company. And I get the deed, the title insurance and all that. And, so they had a real estate conference in January they used to do every year. And I went down there and attended that. And it was a parade of speakers selling their books and tapes. I didn't understand it because I didn't know any better. And, uh, I was reviewing my goals for the previous year. I set a goal to buy one house a month, about 18. So this year, okay. I said, well, I'm gonna buy two houses a month while well, working my full-time job. That's 24. And I thought, man, that's really going to put some pressure on me because, um, uh, I had this mindset of how many houses would I have to own to be able to pay somebody to do this for me? How many houses would I have to own to be able to have a full-time maintenance guy to do repairs and maintenance requests and stuff? And and same with an office person. So that was the kind of mindset I had. And I listened to the keynote speaker. And back then, uh, one of the buzzwords as far as success goes was quantum leap. So quantum leap everything. So quantum, like today's 10X, okay? So Quantum leap your goal. So I had a goal to buy two houses a month, 24 houses that year. Well, he says, when you're setting goals, I'm sorry about that. When he says, when you're setting, uh, that doesn't do that when I'm not talking to Keyshaw. So anyway, um, so I had 24 uh, houses set for the goal for the year. And I said, quantum leap, what's that mean? I don't know. Maybe times four. So I did 96. What the hell? Let's make it 100. He says, "Shoot for the moon when you're setting your goals. If you fall short, are you a loser? No, you're just a star." That that resonated with me and still does to this day, as you can tell. So I said, "Okay, 24 times four is 96. What the hell? Let's make it 100." So how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So I broke it down and I had to average two and a quarter deals per week to pull this off. And I had a study buddy that went with me. Uh, he couldn't buy beers, how young he was at that time. And you know, one hotel room costs the same whether it's one person, two people, and we got a discount for bringing second person to the conference. So we would share private confidential things we don't share with anybody else. If you do have rental properties, have you ever taken your numbers and shared them with a fellow, uh, real estate investor? That's not something we normally do. Okay. And, uh, So he was, he was a pallbearer in my wife's funeral. That's how close uh, he is. In fact, uh, we just talked yesterday. So anyway, I set that goal. Did I meet that goal of a hundred house? No, I only bought 84, (laughs) but only bought 84 that year. And I added 54 houses to my rental portfolio. So that means there's 30 other deals out there that I didn't end up buying and holding. Well, one time I had 17 houses, under contract in the pipeline to buy, okay? But should I close on all those to do buy and hold? They're gonna have to sit there for a couple of months or more while my guys are rehabbing the ones that we already have in place. So I took the, I cherry picked and kept the good ones. I would take saying, one time I had 17, I said, well, let's do so. I'll take 10, what's the worst 10 out of that 17 pending? Well, I take those and wholesale them to other investors. Now, what was the wholesale price back then? I don't know if I made 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, it didn't matter, but I was, I was cranking those off, passing them off to other investors who looked to me to to buy deals. And I know wholesaling is a hot potato today. And, and so that added to my buying machine to grow my portfolio. And back then I wanted to compete with Donald Trump. Okay. After my wife died unexpectedly in 04 kind of changed my values, but here's what I found out about most folks. Most folks don't want to compete with Donald Trump. You guys got work at Amazon. Okay. And here's what I believe everybody, at least in our arena, in my arena, we'd like to have, let's say 20 nice rentals paid for and do it safely within three to five years. And then what that'll do and to use Fred Flintstone math in a town like Mayberry. Okay. Just to stress this or get my message across my learning lesson here. If you've got 20 nice rental houses, they rent for a thousand dollars each. Okay. After taxes, insurance management, uh, allowance for repairs. If you self manage on single families, you have 30% overhead. If you hire a management company and they're going to charge you 10%, you have 40%. Well, I say, let's be a little more aggressive on that. Let's be safer and say 50%. Okay. So if it rents for a thousand bucks, that means 50% for your overhead, which is very high. And that, leaves you a net of $500. Well, how many houses you got? 20. That's 10,000 potatoes in your pocket, in your bank account every month. Okay. Now I don't factor in vacancy factors on single family homes because my folks stay forever. Our average life of a tenant in single family home is over six years in multifamily and apartments. That's, that's between Airbnb rent by the hour, and then long-term single family rentals. Okay. So apartments are a little bit different, but anyway, uh, so that would put $10,000 a month in your pocket. And here's the goal that I'd like for you to set. Just figure out how many rentals it'll take to produce enough money because you own it. Remember Robert Kiyosaki? Okay. Definition of an asset is because you own it, it puts money in your pocket. Okay. So the house you live in paid for is not an asset. Okay. It takes money out of your pocket utilities, maintenance, insurance, whatever. Okay. So, uh, boats paid for cars, trucks paid for, they're not assets, they're liabilities because they take money out of your pocket. So how many houses, and I'm just using that because that's how I got started, but how many houses would you have to have paid for, for you to be able to get up every day and do what you want in life? Now, I'm not saying go out and buy a Learjet and and jet set all over the country, you know, anything like that, but to get up and pursue your passions, not have to worry about that job, to have true financial independence. The number one answer 23 years ago in Los Angeles was $10,000. And I would ask them, how much money in your pocket monthly would make you a happy camper? 2020, $10,000. Two years ago in Memphis, Tennessee, right next to Graceland, where Elvis lives, they got a brand new hotel called the Graceland I think. And I was at the single family summit conference and one of the Memphis investors came up and wanted me to autograph my book, his book, that I, my book that he bought. And I got talking to him. He'd been investing 10 years. I forget how many rentals he had. So I asked him the happy camper number. Guess what he said? 10,000 bucks. Okay. And that's pretty cool. So you might already make that with your J-O-B, with your job and that's fine but here's where folks get a little bit goofy, me included. Okay. Man, I got fired up about this real estate and I can make money here. Wholesale these deals, jump, 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 jump. Okay. What's happening to us in our world in America right now, as far as income taxes go, they're going up or they're going down. Okay. I don't need to expand on that. And I'm definitely not going to get into politics or thing. So, but if you can live, cover your cost of living expenses, pursue your passions in life, and do that on 10,000 a month, more power to you. So let's get something that's going to produce 10,000 a month for you right now. And with real estate and rental properties, your rents are going to go up because of inflation. So that's your hedge against inflation to give yourself a raise. Now, uh, I was of the mindset, well, if I'd like to make 300,000, 400,000 a year, well, if you can live, okay, on 120,000 and get, and be in that income tax bracket, that's going to be a whole lot lower than doing 350, 450, or 500,000 a year. You're going to be bumped up percentage wise. So here's what I encourage you to do. Find out what your happy camper number is. Okay. How many houses, and let's start with that because it's easier. It's easier for me to teach that way, but how many houses would you have to have in Mayberry? Okay. uh, To produce that income for you because you own it. You can sit at the beach, go on a cruise, whatever. Okay. Now, know where you're at you know where you want to go the fastest way to get there is a straight line okay so what i teach uh is how to get those 20 nice rentals paid for and do it safely in three to five years even while working your job and i found that to be very very fascinating and that's where most folks are and so think about this if you could wholesale do buy fix up and sell flipping and flopping and doing all all that other stuff and you take that 10,000 that you're making and you turn it into three or 400,000, you're going to be paying a boatload income tax. So let's take all that other, let's take that extra income that you could make here and be taxed on. And let's put that over in a self-directed Roth IRA. And you should have one, have one for your spouse, have one for your kids, your grandkids, your parents. Okay. Get everybody on that. And once you have enough income to, to be your happy camper number, take all the other deals and real estate and you can loan money to investors, all kinds of stuff and work your self-directed Roth IRA. Okay. And that is fascinating. So, um, okay, so they want to sell you a list and they want you to subscribe to this and subscribe to that and do mailings and all this stuff that costs money. The only thing you need, okay, is a free website, a carrot website, free carrot website that I can give folks and business cards. Okay. And that's about it. That's all you really need. You don't need to subscribe to the list and the postage is what kills you and all that stuff. So, uh, I didn't have money to spend on that, but once and oh, and then number one for all you guys, your town might not be the best place to visit to invest in. For example, in California, it's very rare. Okay. in like Los Angeles and San Diego and San Francisco, you can't find a property, a rental house, a house that you can buy and rent it out and make money on it. Now, to get, hopefully to go up in value, but as far as putting money in your pocket, no. So what the California investors have done, yes, we're in a very rapidly changing market right now, just in real estate repeats itself. So we had the crash of 2008, 9, 10. Okay. And everything bottomed out. And uh, it's like, who moved my cheese? If you haven't got that book, go read it. It's a 10 or 15 minute read. And that's what's going on right now. So they moved the cheese, they raised the interest rates. I think the, the feds raised the prime again last week. And so things are changing, but guess what? Did people stop dying? No. Did they stop getting divorced? Did they stop having job relocation? Did they stop having health issues, getting old and go from the, the family home to a patio home or a home with no steps or assisted living? There's all kinds of reasons that folks can be motivated sellers. That stuff does not stop every day with the market. Okay. So those are the folks that, that you want to, I don't like to use the word target, but if you can figure out a way to have motivated sellers come to you, wow, that makes your life a whole lot easier. So let me give you a definition of a motivated seller. And I don't have this written down or where I can show you on a screen. So if you got a crown or a pen or you have access to a replay, jot this down. Here's, here's where your deals are. Every deal that I've done has had a motivated seller. So this is your challenge to find motivated sellers. A motivated seller is the person with the authority to sell a piece of real estate and they have a problem and selling this real estate will solve all or a major part of their problem. That's the folks you need to find. Okay. They involve pretty houses, they involve ugly houses, all kinds of things, okay? So that's definition of motivated seller. That's who you need to find to do great deals, okay? Now, how do you find that and identify somebody who contacts you or goes to your website and fills out a form and says, I want you to buy my house for him, blah, 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 okay? Here's the magical question. This has made me this has saved me over a million dollars in time. Okay. After you establish rapport with the motivated seller where they get comfortable with you, you're going to ask them, John, why are you unloading this house? John, why are you unloading this property? Now, isn't unloading a friendly, polite and professional way to say, Hey, I ain't going to pay market value. If you want me to buy it and buy it fast, it's got to be a deal for me. So why are you unloading this house? Okay. Now, if they just saw your sign somewhere and it says, we buy houses, we buy real estate, whatever you ask them that question. And they're not a motivated seller. They're going to jump through that phone into your ears and say, I'm not unloading this, huh? blah, 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 blah. Okay. And whoa. Okay. That's what I need to know. I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time anymore. Now down the road, he might become in a couple of months, they might become motivated, but that's a magical question. It's going to save you a ton of time. Another thing I want you to, to remember is the person he who mentions price first loses. Okay. So I've done this and and what qualifies me to be an expert? I've made more mistakes than anybody else. (laughs) Okay. So everything that if I say do this and don't do that and blah, blah, blah. That's because I've had, I've lessened the school of hard knocks. Okay. So here's one that I was guilty of getting started. Hey, Mike, I hear you buy houses. Can you come out here and look at mine and give me an offer? Okay. Well, I used to drop everything and run and go do it. Okay. Don't do that, guys. Okay. And I got two things to to teach you to help you out with this. Okay. Number one, your time is too precious and valuable. I mean, Amazon wants you to do all this stuff and that takes time. And then, okay, I had my full time job. I had about five hours a week. I could devote to real estate. And I figured out how to create a buying system to pull that off without going to the bank. So somebody says, Hey, my, Hey John, I hear you buy houses. Come out here and look at mine and make me an offer. Well then I'm going to say, Whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. Uh, what do you want for it? Well, I don't know. I just want to see what you give it for. it. Well, I don't want to waste your time or my time. Okay. So let me ask you a couple of questions and I got a property information sheet. You just fill in the blanks, has the questions already written out for you that say it like, Hey, Phil, why are you unloading this house? And so they got to come up with a price first. Okay. Because I'm not going to waste my time. So if they come up with a price first and you feel like it's in the ballpark. Okay. Then I want you to take the Mike Butler investor pledge and everybody can do this right now. And it's going to make, it's made me millions. Okay. Here it is. Raise your right hand, your left hand or both hands. I don't care. Repeat after me. I promise to myself and my family, play along John or Keishaw. I promise to myself and my family repeat after me I promise to myself from this moment forward, from this moment forward to make an offer, to make an offer. Even if ridiculous, even if ridiculous on every property, on every property, I take time out of my precious day to view. I take time out of my Okay. Bingo. Thank you. You're all in the club now. Okay. So, and and I've, I'm guilty of this, this stuff. How many times have I gone out and looked at a house and shook my head and said, man, this is a money fit. There ain't no deal here. Okay. I wasted my time. Well, if I'm going to take my time to go out there and do that, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna make an offer. So this works with real estate agents too. If it's listed on the MLS, all that. So there, there's a house I still own today, rental house. Uh, back then they had it. This was in the early nineties. A cobalt Banker sign went up. They got it for sale for say 90,000. I drive by a couple of months later, the Cobalt Banker sign's still there. Got grass clippings all over it. The house looks vacant. And so I called up the agent on my bag phone, okay, in my car and said, hey Sam, what's going on with this property? I don't know the agent, okay. And uh, she said, well, we had a contract on it, but it fell apart that still happens today doesn't it i said is it empty you got a lockbox on she said yeah i said well give me the the cold so i walked through the house i didn't want it it had an ugly floor plan 38 year owner occupant one block over from where i grew up on my paper route i love the location i hated the house it is ugly okay so normally i would have just walked away but i said well okay so i took out my simple one page offer form filled in the blanks. I offered them $20,000 for it. cash, took it over to the agent's office in the envelope. She submitted it to the seller. Okay. The owners and the agent called me up the next day and cussed me out. And she called me everything except what I was. And she says, damn, Mike, had I known that I'd have bought it myself. Okay. So that's weird. So I bought it for 20,000 and it even gets better. About two months later, that couple that owned it for 38 years calls me up after getting permission from their agent and says, Hey, Mr. Butler. I said, yeah, well, this is Henry and Ethel down uh, You bought our house, our home over on Clara Avenue, 1536. And we just got a check in the mail from our insurance company for the roof damage that happened back in the spring, all the hail damage. And she goes, where do you want me to send this? So they lived about, they'd moved about an hour South of my town and I had my daughter Rachel with me and I said, so where are you at? Give me the address. And I'm and, and going back to what my Papaw did. My grandpa used to occasionally on a Sunday, he stop by Colonel Sanders, pick up a bucket of chicken, bring over to our family, the seven kids and mom and dad and all that. And we would gobble that down. So they're about my Papaw's age. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to bring you some lunch. I'm gonna get some Colonel Sanders come down and have lunch with you and uh, get to meet you because I didn't get to do that uh, when I bought the house from you. So I went down there. Oh, and on the phone, I asked her, I said, so how much is check for? She goes 8,000 blah, 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 blah. And some change It's like, Holy cow. Okay. So I got a check for 8,500 bucks or whatever. So what would my purchase price go down to now? It's down to let's take eight twenty 20 minus eight, say 12,000 bucks. Okay. And it all, and this is a house that I would have walked away from and never made an offer, but because of my investor pledge and I made an offer, what kind? Ridiculous. Look what it turned into. And I got that thing rented for like a thousand bucks a month right now today. It's still ugly. (laughs) It's an ugly house, but it's a great rental. Uh, So there's like some weird lessons learned that it's kind of common sense. Um, so let me see what else. Why uh why landlording versus the other. I prefer single family houses. Here's why. You might hear folks that want you to jump into multifamily. I say if you're going to jump into multifamily and in apartments, don't put all your eggs in one basket and rely on a 24plex to be your income for life or to give you true financial independence. If you're going to do multifamily, well then Watch this. They'll say, here's what those gurus say. Well, you only got one roof to worry about. Well, if you have two vacancies, well then you're going to have 22 other units that going to make that payment. But let me ask you this. What if somebody builds a, a, an affordable housing complex within a block or two or three, and they got granite countertops, a clubhouse, a swimming pool, uh, stainless steel appliances, a, a gym, all that stuff. And their rents are $200 a month cheaper than yours. What are you going to do? What if you've got four vacancies in that 24 unit that you can't get filled at the current rent, at, your, at the rent that you want? How do you get those rented? Can you lower your rent? Because guess what? All those 20 other tenants, like an ant farm, they're going to say, well, I want my rent lowered. So you're stuck there. What if you screw up? and don't process a rental application thoroughly or you miss something and you put a bad apple into a 24 unit building okay it's going to take longer for you to evict them than it's going to take for your good tenants around them to leave they'll leave faster than you can evict the bad ones okay so now and plus you got overhead you got water parking trash lawn service blah 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 so let's move over single families what if you got 24 single family houses? Okay. And two of them are vacant. That's okay. The other 22 of make the payment up for that. Okay. What if the market changes? Can you lower the rent on a single family to get it rented? If that's what the market calls for now, I hate saying that, but we got to be prepared for the worst. Yeah. Okay. What if you screw up and put a bad apple in there? Yeah, it's going to take the neighbors off, but is it going to affect all your other tenants? No. Okay. What if you need to sell it quick, have a fire sale for whatever reason, okay? Health tragedy, just who knows, okay? And a single family house is more liquid. So you're more apt to get closer to a retail price for it uh, in a single family house and sell it quicker than if you've got that 24 unit building, who's gonna buy that? That's gonna be an investor. And what do they wanna do? They wanna cut your throat. They're looking for a deal, okay? So especially getting started. I highly recommend start off with single families. Okay. Then we got the thing about short term rentals and Airbnbs and VRBOs. Do your homework, ask your tax advisor about that, because that by itself is really not investing. You're running a business like a hotel. Get with a CPA, a real estate investor expert, and let them explain to you why. Now, if you've got 30 rentals, okay, or 20 rentals or 10 rentals, you got a couple of Airbnbs, VRBOs, short term rentals, That's fine because that can supplement. You're using that to grow your portfolio. So check with your CPA on that. Uh, commercial property, I've got them. Um, commercial property, uh, you can score big (laughs) and you can lose big. And when you see shopping centers, depending on where you live, okay, each area has their own market. Okay. There are super nice uh, shopping centers in my town that I know, the owners and some of them are pretty big outfits and just because they're occupied, doesn't mean they're paying rent. And if you get a shopping center that goes vacant on you, Holy cow, you got to pay taxes, the upkeep, the maintenance, the trash, the electric, electric house. Oh, it's just brutal. So be careful. So if you want to do multifamily and get a 24 unit building, I'm going to encourage you to get 24 of those get 24, 24 unit buildings. And now if two of them are not performing well, the other 22 should make up for it. So, um, that's good. What other, what else you got? Uh, well, we got the, the list of 10 questions that I think a lot of folks ask. Okay. Um, I can, I could I'll race through those real quick. Okay. So one question is why landlording versus fix and flip or other forms of investment? Well, in single family houses, I can always be the expert because I'm dealing primarily with homeowners and tenants. Okay. If I get into the multifamily and commercial stuff, I'm the low man on the totem pole. Okay. And there's a lot of uh, pros and cons about that. We just don't have time to get into it, but I just say, you got to be more careful. Okay. Um, And buy, fix up and sell and wholesaling is not investing if that's all you do. That's no different than having a used car lot. You go to the auctions on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you buy a car, bring it to your lot, you put some lipstick on it and sell it for a higher price. When you stop moving, should you be in a car wreck, have a health tragedy and you can't buy anymore, you stop moving, you stop doing what you're doing, your income's going to drop to zero. Okay. So keep that in mind. That's the way the IRS looks at it too. Okay. Uh, What makes me decide real estate was the right path for me? I think I shared a lot of that already. I don't want to repeat it. How'd you finance your first rental? Uh, I hocked my 77 Monte Carlo at a Ford pickup truck and use that money to buy it and fix it up and then refinanced it after I got a tenant put in there. Okay. So it's sort of like I was burr before burr was cool. I was country before country was cool. So that's exactly what I would do. I'd buy a fixer upper, have my guys fix it up, put a tenant in it. Then I go get my long-term financing and the rates were about they were a little bit higher than what they are today. Back then. Biggest difficulty you face when renting. Um, biggest difficulty face when renting. I'm going to say everybody on here has probably had somebody that has came up to them and said, Oh, I'm never going to do rental properties again, man. I bought a house. I fixed it up, put tenants in there. They moved out, and I had to fix it all up again. You ever heard that? All of us have. Okay. So how would you like to have an answer that's sort of kind of like stick it and twist it with a touche? Would you like that? Here's all you got to do. Who gave them the keys? That knucklehead did. Okay. So when it comes to rental properties, you got to do your homework on the front end. Okay. Processing that rental application legally, fairly, and make sure that they're qualified, okay? And most investors, when we get started, we're ignorant of fair housing laws, both federal, state, local, okay? That's your rule book. You also have a landlord-tenant law for each state and some even cities, and you gotta abide by that, okay? So, you know, it's like the NFL. If we watch a football game and they go, oh, replay, and so then they'll pull out the rule book and look and see, okay, what's this, what's that? We gotta do the same thing in this thing called real estate. And if you don't follow the rules in this, guys, I mean, home ownership in people's homes is up there with cherry pie and American flag and everything else. It's very precious. So, uh, and the government tries to protect people from bad landlords. Okay, and and that goes across. If you're selling, buying, financing, look in banks if they loan money to people. You see a fair housing poster. Okay, so we got to stay up on top of that. So do your homework. Get educated. Okay. Every dollar you spend on education, even if it's bad. And I've spent a boatload of money on bad seminars and workshops, but ultimately it saved me money because I figured out, Hey, I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of stuff. So that put the brakes on it stopped and I never went down that road. Okay. You might say here, people say, well, do a kitchen table closing. No, the measurement of a good deal is to put your mother in the seller's shoes. And if your mother was in that same predicament, would you bless the deal that the investor is presenting? Okay. And it would make her problem go away and, and whatever. It might not be the best. Okay. But could you bless it? And then if you can put your, assuming you love your mother. Okay. So if you love your mom, put your mom in the seller's shoes and, and would that be a deal you would bless? Okay. So uh, that's one, but education, education is, is, uh, is where it's at. It's going to give you the power and you can't sit there and wait for stuff to fall in your lap. That's why ships. Ships aren't meant to stay in the harbor. They're meant to go out to sea. All right, most important factor in deciding the tenant, I got four simple questions that you're going to ask a previous landlord or property manager, not a list of 32 questions. They're going to throw that in the trash. Here's what they are. Did they pay on time? Did you get any complaints on them? Did they damage your property? And would you rent to them again? That's all you need to know, isn't it? Okay, so you can, if you're good with people, you can get a mom and pop landlord who's driving down the highway in his truck. He'll answer that question for you right out of the gate. And if they're professional, they say, well, I can't do that until I get authorization to release information. Okay, Ralph, what's your email? What's your fax number? Okay, I've got it right here in my hand. I'm going to send it to you. i just got four simple yes, no questions. I don't want to take up your time. And so when I talk to them like that, then they answer those questions for me. Okay. Um, what factors are most important? Picking the good tenant uh, should a would be investor focus on a cap rate when thinking about purchasing a rental. Now I assume all you guys are educated cause you worked at Amazon. Okay. Uh, <laughs> cap rate. Cap rate is one of those things. When I got started, I just pretended like I knew what it was like that big word called depreciation, which is a huge tax benefit. But cap rate, I never really factor that in unless I'm doing a big project on commercial or on land or something like that. But when it comes to me running the numbers, okay, I've got a simple formula to run the numbers for a rental to see. okay, I'm looking at buying this house at one, two, three main street, making it a rental property. Is it going to be a good rental? So I've got a little formula where you do market rent, pay yourself first. You don't get leftovers pay yourself. How much do I want to make on this every month? And then you take one 12th of property taxes, insurance, repairs, management, uh, management fee, management, if you're going to have it hired out and then pay attention to HOAs or condo fees or something like that. And you also got to look and see if it's in the floodplain because that's definitely going to affect this property. And so you run those numbers that way. And the number at the bottom, okay, that number at the bottom then becomes what I call debt service ceiling. Okay. So that means as long as your loan payment does not exceed this number, you're going to be able to rent it for this and put this much money in your pocket every month. Okay. And keep in mind, rents go up. So it's going to be challenging on the first. Now what would that number have to be for me today? Back when I got started $150 a month, but I didn't have a formula. Okay. Uh, I would say today a single family house, a minimum of 400, maybe 500 and, um, for to put in my pocket because I own it and because I'm renting it out. That's over and above loan payments, all that. So, um, what was it? Oh, cap rate. So cap rate. Okay. what I'm doing, I'm buying this house. I look at market rent, blah, 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 blah. And I'll deduct the expenses to handicap it and see how much money I got. As long as my loan does not exceed that I can make money. Now I look at that, pay me now pay me now number I'm going to get every month. Is that enough money in my pocket for me to do the deal? I never put it to a cap rate. I didn't know what a cap rate was. Okay. To this day. Okay. Just, um, today's what Friday, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday, I did an apartment community. Okay. And I broke it down. They were, they were taking bids on its auction. And so I had my guy, I'm in Florida and my properties are up in Louisville, Kentucky. And I had my lead maintenance supervisor go over there with his cell phone and we did a Google, I mean, we did a zoom meeting. He walked around the outside of it, walked through the inside, blah, blah, blah. And I'm taking notes on all this, jotting it down. And, and so then I figured up how much it's going to cost to make all this stuff rent ready with new appliances, all this and that. And so I took the total number of units in the building. I mean, in the apartment, there were several buildings. Okay. I took the total number of units. And I broke it down. Remember how you eat an elephant one bite at a time. So I uh, document how much it's going to take to fix up each unit to make it rent ready times the number of units. That's going to be my rehab cost for the interior. Then I did the outside of each building. Okay. And added that in there. So that's how I came up with my price. And then I went and looked at, okay, so what kind of terms can I get for this kind of money? And then I'd run my numbers on the rentals and see if it's going to work. And, uh, as, as a rule of thumb here, I'm going to say for the last five to eight years, apartments have been selling for more than what they're worth. And that happens because of the cheap money. So I'm still watching that and seeing what's going on because rates are going up and that's going to affect all of us. Okay. Uh, so I never focused on cap rate. Uh, I'm a, I'm a buy, I'm a buy and hold guy. Okay. I'm a, a buy and hold guy. And when I discovered depreciation, I asked my CPA when I got started years and years ago, what do the old time successful investors complain about? He said, they complain about paying too much in income tax. And I said, why is that? He says, because they ran out of depreciation. And so he explained it to me what it was. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that. So I learned about depreciation and I said, how can I prevent that from happening to me? And he says, pile on depreciation. I said, how can I do that? He said, the easiest way to do it, Mike, and this is exactly what I did. Anytime I wrote a check for a property for $500 or more, I would capitalize it. And that means it gets added to the cost basis of my property. And then it gets its own depreciation schedule, which my CPA takes care of. I don't do any of that. Okay. So about four years ago, four and a half years ago, I get a nasty grant from the IRS. Okay. They're going to do a three-year deep dive audit of everything I own. How would that make you feel guys? That ain't fun, is it? Yeah. Did I have some sleepless nights? Absolutely. Let me ask you this. How many people do you know that's had an IRS audit and didn't have to pay any extra money? Everyone I know had to pay more, didn't they? way, somehow. So I've got all this stuff and we probably had 10 different meetings over the course of a year. And then they had the final meeting. And guess what? I came out of that thing with no penalties, no extra income tax, no late fees, no nothing. Okay. I got a green light across the board. My jaw dropped. I had a buddy of mine, similar situation, had to write a check for $225,000. I was like, wow. So I asked my CPA about that. I said, is that normal? He says, no. He says, I guess you're good with people, Mike. And uh, I said, can I share this? Well, that system I was telling you that I created. Okay. uh, That's a system that I use and still use to this day. And that's what the IRS went through. So I can, I can tell folks that my system survived a three year deep dive audit by the IRS. And oh, and so what triggered that? What caused the IRS to look at me? Wanting to do a three year deep dive audit of everything I own. And remember, my CPA said old time successful investors, they complain about paying too much in income tax. So I wanted my depreciation to outlive me. So every time I wrote a check for $500 or more, boom, I capitalized it. So what triggered my three year deep dive audit by the IRS, I had $1,800,000 something dollars in losses carried forward. So what's that mean? That means I can make a $2 million and have to pay income tax on less than 200,000 and that's getting piled on every year. Continuing. Now I had a unscheduled tax benefit that we should not, my wife died unexpectedly in 04 and there were tax things that happened that benefited me because My cost basis got to jump up because she died, jump up 50% as far as like the equity. That helped me out tremendously. But I think I'd still not be paying any income tax. So, um, oh, buy and hold is what I like to do. Okay. Um, Um, And um, go ahead. Oh, I have to have a, please feel free to continue the
0: party. You know, keep keep the questions coming in. Everyone have a good time. Um, but everyone have a good weekend and again, be free to stay on. Uh, thanks Mike for joining. Um, I'll just, I'll just talk to you later. But
2: give, give me a rating yeah. for the information so far.
0: I love it. I actually didn't think about this writing a check to continue your
2: depreciation uh, going so, forward. Increase it. Exactly. To increase it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So that's a right. pretty well, you have record. a
2: good weekend Keshav and thanks for inviting me, buddy. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. But again,
0: Party goes on. I'll see you guys next next time.
2: Okay. Yep. All right. And um, let's see. So the question, I got a question. Do you need an LLC, the rent properties? I'm going to say uh, you get your first one or two and you're dabbling in it. Yeah, just add, keep it in your name, put it on your uh, homeowner's insurance policy. Um, but if you feel like you got that in your blood and you want to do it, absolutely. You need to have entities for your, rental properties, your real estate business? Um, How can I equip myself with the right knowledge? Uh, First off, find a local RIA group or what you're doing right here. Do all these people here have their contact information for each other?
1: Uh, No. I mean, I think most of us, we have some Slack channels, so we can reach out to each other through Slack. Um, There are groups for that. So yes.
2: I mean, there's probably 40,000 people out there teaching people how to invest in real estate, but just like before buying a property, do your due diligence, you know, do a little homework on them, see where they've been, what they've done, who recommends them. Uh, And you guys are sharp enough because you're here on this Amazon call. You know, there are websites that put scam reviews on people. Uh, So try to keep all that in mind, but you're going to do most of your research on the internet. So find somebody that's good and preferably somebody that you know that has attended or gotten training from them uh, would be the best thing. Okay. Um, biggest piece of advice to aspiring investors. I don't have, work your IRA, your self-directed Roth IRA and try to keep your taxable income, your earned income, the lowest that it can be and put the rest in your Roth IRA for yourself, your kids, your spouse, um, Mike, don't swing. Mike. Yeah.
1: That, that comment about the self-directed IRA um, is that related to real estate? Because uh, uh, yes. that, that's, that's after-tax money, but you're funneling the after-tax money you're funding funneling your real estate, basically profits into a self-directed IRA.
2: No, I wouldn't say you're funneling, you're funneling, you're funneling the investment. Okay. So if, if you walk in, if, if you walk into your local bank or one of these financial advisors, they'll say, Oh yeah, we got self-directed Roth IRAs and they're going to pull out a, uh, menu, like from a restaurant, well, you can pick this, this, and this, that's self-directed. You get to pick. Well, no, that's not what we're talking about. A true self-directed uh, IRA is where you get to use your knowledge between your ears. Okay. And take your IRA money and purchase assets, invest in assets like rental property. Okay. Commercial, multifamily, single family, whatever you want, Mini storage, self-storage, they're investments. Okay. And so then your IRA owns that and all the uh, the activity, cash flow, profit income, all that stuff, that stays in your IRA, okay? And so you gotta find a custodian that will do that. Now, there's two types of IRAs. You got the traditional, which goes way back, and then long about the mid-90s, they created the Roth IRA, and here's the difference. The traditional is tax-deferred, so that means when you open it up and fund it, make your contribution, you have not paid income tax on that money. And what CPAs and tax advisors like is you can take your contribution because it's tax deferred and it lowers your taxable income right now, okay? Whereas with a Roth IRA, okay, you're opening that and funding it with after-tax dollars. You've already paid income tax on it. So it's like the ultimate savings account. So all your contributions that you make, you can pull that out at any time if needed, okay? And not have any penalties, no harm, no foul, no nothing. You've already paid income tax on it. And what's beautiful is all that it's like being a farmer. You want to pay taxes on the seeds now and keep the crops tax-free, or you want to defer, not pay taxes on your seeds, and then when you harvest your crops, pay income tax. Which one do you want? I like the other one. You know, let me pay taxes on the seeds. Okay. So many folks are going to bump into financial advisors, going to tell you you can't buy real estate with it. Okay. Get IRS publication 590. Okay. Write that down IRS publication 590. And that is the IRS guidelines on IRAs. It tells you what you can and cannot invest in. It's not the law. Okay. It's a publication they put out to give you guidance. So you can't do collectibles or art or some other things, okay? But, uh, and then the other thing is, it tells you who you can do deals. So when I first learned about this, I said, oh man, I'd like to take a hundred of my houses and put it in my Roth IRA. Sorry, Charlie, nope, you already own them. You cannot do a deal with yourself, okay? So here's who you cannot do deals with. Think of a totem pole, remember those, okay? So at the top, you got your, your grandparents and your spouse's grandparents. Then you have your parents and your outlaws. Okay, then you have you and your spouse, then you have you and your ki- or your kids, and then you have your grandkids. Those folks on that poll cannot do a deal amongst each other uh, in your IRA. But brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, cousins, good to go, okay? Uh, so I love the tax-free profit and income for life with the self-directed Roth IRA. That thing is beautiful. It has to be seasoned for five years, And then at 59 and a half, you can start doing distributions. So um, I don't want you to swing a hammer or a paintbrush thinking you're saving money, okay? How much could you pay somebody to do that? And your time is so precious and valuable, guys. I did that, I swung a hammer on my first five properties, I did it all. And on my fifth property, I stopped by the paint store on my off date, seven o'clock in the morning, picked up two five gallon buckets of paint, and I said, I'm gonna paint the inside of this house, get it done before 12 noon so I can go home on my off day, have lunch, and uh, and spend the rest of the day with my kids. So while I'm painting this house, okay, my pager goes off several times. And that was the pager. It looks like a fax machine hanging on your belt with the chain. Remember those? And so I said, I'm not budging. I'm going to get this house painted. So I go home, and back then my answer machine was like two audio cassettes that had TV tuner dials on it. <laughs> you know, you did that. And so I had several messages on there. One was from my buddy Jay Long, who i mentioned earlier. The other one was from my dad. I was on the bomb squad. So they had some kind of an announcement and this and that. And then at 830 that morning, well, my buddy Jay Long called me up. He says, Hey, give me a call. I think this wholesaling stuff works. Now he couldn't buy beer. He's 20 years old, full-time investor. Dad pays for his truck and his insurance and his gas mom still washes his clothes and all that. I'm married and got two kids. And so um, I called him up and he says, yeah, I had this lady call me up and said she wanted to move to Florida and she just wanted to unload her house, just wanted to sell it. I didn't want it, but I used your investor pledge, Mike. And so I made a ridiculous offer and she said, yes. I went, "Uh Oh, I don't want to own it. So I called another investor and I said, Hey, I want you to play the role like contractor. I'm going to walk you through this house. So that investor offered him $20,000 more than the deal he had pending with this lady, the homeowner, and they closed on Tuesday he got 20,000 bucks. So anyway, I listened to my other messages, 830 that morning, guess who was on my answer machine? Same lady. She says, Mike, I know you buy houses. I need to sell mine fast to go to Florida. Can you give me a call before 12 noon or I'm going to start calling these other people in the paper. So, guess what I did with my paintbrush and my hammers and stuff. Remember the Bob Newhart show? If you're old enough, when the Bob Newhart show went off the air, I got his maintenance team, and that was Larry and Daryl and his other brother Daryl, <laughs> and they've been working for me since. So, <clears throat> don't that, that so that paint job cost me? I could have had that house painted for about less than two hundred bucks labor, not counting the paint. And so that paint job that I did myself to save money cost me nineteen thousand bucks. Little over nineteen thousand dollars. I haven't touched the house since. So, all right. What other questions you got, guys?
1: Yeah.
2: So I know you mostly
1: buy your homes cash. Uh, for the people who are no, buying- no,
2: that's not true at all. Oh, I see, no, no, okay. no, 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 I didn't have cash to buy. So um, I was bird before bird was cool. So here's what would happen. So I'd buy a house, I'd fix it up, put a tenant in it, then go. I would go get a loan on it and they would give me 80% of what it appraises for. So, and I was buying at such a great price that I was walking away from that closing with cash. Yeah, I still had the loans, still had loan payments, but sometimes I get tens of thousands of dollars in cash that I would combine and pile over up here so I could buy houses and pay cash if I needed to. But I also love creative financing. And that is by far the best thing to do. I made a killing with creative uh, financing.
1: Got it, okay. Um, So the one question I have was related to uh, after 10 10 loans through the bank, through an individual, um, you're, as I understand, prevented from uh, getting any more loans, right? You can get your spouse get another 10, so you might have 20 between the two of you. How did you uh, manage to,
2: buy your next home, like the
1: 21st home
2: to Okay. You got to remember, I've never gone to a bank to buy an investment property. Okay. And especially in today's market, it used to be up until what, two years ago, uh, investors could get great loans. Okay. And then they had that 10 loan rule. Okay. That's an FHA. That's a federal rule. Okay. That's not a bank rule or something like that. So what the banks would do, is process your application following the feds guidelines and doc list and all this and that process the loan, close on it, and then they sell it and get paid back that money. Okay? So the 10 the ten loan rule is something that's made up by the feds. So they can change at any time. At one time it was four, and that's all you could have. So that can change. Now, what you've got to find if you're going that route is to find a bank or credit union. Don't forget about credit unions that are investor friendly. Not loan sharks, but that are truly investor friendly. And we just had a big powwow going over one one deal this week and you gotta have a relationship with them. What's a relationship? Well, it doesn't mean you walk in off the street and say, hey, what you got? You You need to talk to your other folks and see what kind of loan products they have and this and that, and be willing to open an account and do business with them. And here's where you're gonna find your deals your best investor loans, they're going to be small town banks and credit unions, PNC, the Washington Mutual, or Washington Mutual not around anymore, but uh, you can see where my brain is. Yeah. But uh, Wells Fargo, all those places like that, uh, more, uh, more chase, they're not, they're, they're, they're not investor friendly. Okay. And so they got to open up their, their cookbook and see what they can and what they can't do. You're not going to find any creative loans there but the credit unions, small town banks, they can, okay? And what I'll say this, just because I said that doesn't mean that they all are investor friendly because there's some that go like this. We're not touching investor loans, kiss of death, no no way, shape or form. We have banks, small town banks in my town. They don't touch investor loans. So uh, you gotta do your homework there and due diligence. And what I would highly recommend to do is instead of trying to go to a bank or credit union to get a loan, to beg permission to get a loan to buy a property. Okay. I I uh, highly recommend you do this. Give with your motivated seller and structure a deal where you have a closing and you get the deed. But even if it means set up some kind of short term financing, like you're going to pay so much a month for one year or you'll give them six months to pay it off or, 10 months. That'll give you time to get it fixed up, put a tenant in and get your long-term financing in place, which hopefully you find a lender that'll give you 75 or 80% loan to value and not loan to purchase price. Okay. And if you can find some that'll do that because what I've seen too many investors do, they'll find something that's a fixer up or they go find somebody that'll loan them the money. And then you get in this thing about draws and they got fees for that and blah, blah, blah. Then when you get it rent ready, well then you got to go get another loan. Well, why not just figure out the cheapest way to acquire it, get it in shape, put a tenant in it, now it's in service, now it looks pretty and you can go get your long-term financing in place and they'll base that hopefully on the value and not your purchase price, okay? And then oh, let me add one more thing on there. Okay. Um, what you're competing against right now, you've heard about private lenders, hard money lenders, things like that. Look at your local banks and credit unions. we got a bank in my town that's paying 5% interest on $25,000 deposit on a seven month uh, requirement. That's, that's incredible. So it's going to be hard to find a private lender. You're going to have to beat that bank rate if you want a private lender to fund your deal short term so you get it rent ready and you can finance it with your long term.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to express that same sentiment. Uh, I was, um, I had a town home, uh, pretty relaxed HOAs. I was, I was served on the board as well, but the HOA can uh, basically create any restrictive covenants that will, that may ruin rental opportunities. It's not necessarily a done, done deal, but. Does that be- let me give
2: you a, let me add something here with a twist. That's going to go, I'm not getting egg on my face. I'm just going to show you the other extreme. Okay. So last year I bought this uh, beachfront condo for my wife. We're up on the 27th floor. Nice view down here in Panama city beach. And it's only a nine hour drive from my hometown. And I was looking to buy a single family house down in Cape Coral. Okay. But think about this. You got a single family house as a second home. Look at all the stuff, the fees that go with it. You got water, you got sewer, you got trash, you got maintenance, lawn service, cleaning up the gutters, picking up the yard. You got to have a pool boy. Okay. So all of that and internet. So all that stuff would add up to a thousand bucks a month. Right? Whereas me, I've got this condo on the beach that my wife loves. Okay. And I got a thousand dollar a month condo fee that covers internet, uh, pest control, outside maintenance, pools, uh, sewer water, all of that stuff that I would be paying for a single family house so this fits me perfectly to pay a thousand dollars a month for the condo fee all right and uh, the parking garage all that stuff so this is is wonderful and and so but that is a second home kind of thing now I'm also looking at there's 570 units in this in this building. And I'm also looking at buying additional condos in this unit and do short term rentals. 1031 and some of my single families in my hometown down here into these beachfront condos. Kind of cool.
1: I dropped a link about Cossack. Um, yeah. Uh, you Weiss talked about it a while back. So go and take a look yeah. at yeah. that. Yeah. You know, Weiss is all over YouTube. Yes. Um, and, and, uh, I, Not to not to cut you off, Michael. But um, I do want to take Bella's one question, and then I know we are running out of time. So, uh, Michael, uh, uh, before I guess Mike, before you take off, do you want to share your information so that people who are interested in finding out more information, possibly contacting you, uh, can reach out to you and ask you more questions, and then we can take it.
2: Got all kinds of free stuff for you guys including my two best-seller books, but real easy, mikebutler.com. How's that? And that's uh, B-U-T-L-E-R, not B-U-L, but B-U-T-L-E-R. Oh, my dad's last name Butler, and my mom's maiden name is Cook. So the butler married the Cook. That's uh, kind of interesting, but mikebutler.com. And if you can't remember that, just Google Mike Butler, and you'll find me.
1: You mentioned connecting with local real estate investors for someone getting started what's the best way to find these groups any red flags
2: in the platform. Uh go to google punch in your town and put real estate investor groups or associations or something and there will be i promise you there will be several you might find a meetup you might find uh, i was on the board for three years of the national association of real estate investors and then two term past president, been on the board of my local group for years and years and years. And uh, I would encourage you to join them. And you can join one, a lot of them, especially during COVID, they would broadcast their meetings live using Zoom meeting or something. So maybe you can be a member long distance. And uh, I've helped RIA groups set up their websites and stuff. But I would say join a rea group, especially if it's local and you don't have to drive two hours to get there. Okay. But join a REA group and here's what to expect of it is every meeting going to be the best. No, but they're going to give you access. Their focus is supposed to be on education, even if they're for profit. Okay. And I would encourage you, let's say you pick my town to invest in. Well, join that group. They're going to keep you up to date on local laws, uh, housing codes, uh, new rules and regulations and stuff that you're not going to get on national level. OK, so try to find one where you invest in, even if you don't live in that town. Um, but but they're also the networking aspect. You're going to get direct and indirect uh, opportunities to attend educational events. OK, and some of them are going to be worthless. <laughs> OK, if Charlie Brown's teacher is going to teach it and sound like, wah, 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 wah. OK, and some of them are going to be phenomenal. So that all comes with the turf. Especially on the non uh, nonprofit ones, but thank you guys for having me on board here. I hope that uh, I give each of you a little golden nugget or something you can chew on or move forward with, or uh, can affect your business in a positive way for you, yourself, and your family. And um, real estate been very, very good to me.
1: Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you as well for all the uh, knowledge you've imparted. It's been great. Uh, MikeButler.com okay. is how you can reach Mike for more information. Um, And this will be recorded, so uh, we'll post it as soon as it's available.
0: Thank you very much for the great presentation, Mike. We learned a lot about how to dial in the most vital information about your rentals, how to handle investing remotely, and how to avoid common mistakes most new landlords make. If you want to learn more about Landlording on Autopilot, feel free to reach out to Mike via his email, news at mikebutler.com. We will include his contact information in the description for this episode as well. Again, thank you, Mike, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak to our audience. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our show on whichever platform you're listening to, to ensure that we can continue bringing you the best educational content. Thanks, everyone. And until next time, keep learning to invest for generational wealth.